You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you are new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalog and listen to some of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's super special episode with Jerry Parker and Robert Carver, which was the first time, actually, that Jerry and Rob had a chance to discuss their different approaches to trend following. Moritz, always great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things in Germany? I'm doing really good. How are you, Niels? Glad to be back on. I, by the way, enjoyed the uh, episode between, or not between, between is wrong, right. with, <laughs> with, with yeah. Jerry, you and Rob um, last week um, a lot. I, I thought it was great. And... Um, I'm doing fine. I, I can't wait to get out of these vaccine lockdowns. It's kind of like nagging me. No skiing this year, none of that stuff. Um, really disappointing, but um, let's hope it's over soon. Yeah, I think we, we all do. Now, it's rare that I start with an update with news from my birth country of Denmark. So it must be really important, right? And uh, I think it is. So... Um, the headline that that I kind of thought of uh, was, you know, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, which of course is something that people have heard many times before. So let me explain. So on Tuesday, the Danish Financial Supervisory Authority issued an executive order that cuts the maximum interest rate that pension fund providers can promise investors in guaranteed rate products to minus 0.5% from the current 1%, effective July 1st. Now, despite several attempts to Google this news to find out the reasoning they gave for this drastic decision, I did not really find anything, which leaves me to my own speculation, which of course can be quite dangerous and misleading. But nevertheless, I can't help thinking that this is a move to save the pension fund system from collapse at some point because of the precarious monetary policy of the Danish and other central banks. Effectively, as far as I can tell, this forced people to move their hard-earned pension savings from quote-unquote safe investments to more risky market return-linked investments, such as equities, at a point where many would say that equities are more than fully priced, leaving Danish pension savers with the choice of a guaranteed loss on their pension or the risk of a much bigger loss if and when we enter into the next prolonged bear market inequities. And frankly, I worry that this is only the beginning and that other countries will follow the Danish example. Now, this week, after last week's kind of disastrous seven-year note auction, there was some trepidation in front of the 120 billion three-year, 10-year, and 30-year auctions. However, all three cleared without any significant issues. Also of significance, actually, Verizon sold $25 billion, which was actually originally sized at $10 billion. Now they sold $25 billion in a nine-part deal where the $109 billion in orders for the paper 
And this issuance may have weighed a little bit on the treasury market as yields this week were higher across the curve, especially on Friday. And the 10-year note touched a 52-week high of 1.63%. Investors, of course, are likely to uh, turn their attention already to uh, February retail sales that comes out next week. But maybe more importantly, the FOMC meeting and the decision on Wednesday. Of course, we don't really expect any change in policy. But it's going to be interesting to see what Chairman Powell raises in terms of points in his address. Moritz, of course, we're going to talk about trend following. We're going to talk about your portfolio. And maybe we'll return a little bit later to something that's related to interest rates and stuff like that. But let's uh, do our usual stuff. Yeah. Um, speaking about performance, I mean, I have had a very great start into the year. It continues to run that way. I think I mentioned it before, it started uh, end of November last year, and then things really kicked into gear. We probably spoke last mid-February. I closed February, I ended February up 8.61%. Now in March, I'm up 6.41%. Year-to-date is 17% up. But I've had quite a few trades since we last spoke, probably 10 or 11 positions that uh, have changed or been added to my portfolio. And I've been relatively slow becoming short the bonds. I think last time we spoke, I only had long positions. I had long positions in energies and equities, some of the currencies, the grains, copper, etc. And I didn't have any short positions. Now that has changed. I'm short Canadian bonds. I'm short euro dollars. I'm short the five-year note. I'm short the 10-year note. I'm short the long bond. What else? Short Canadian bonds. So bond shorts. That has That is the one main thing that has happened. And I've also become longer and crude, opened a, another long in natural gas. And then, you know, emissions is, uh, is fantastic. I think it's now trading at 42 and a half or something like that. It has had a massive run from about 32 and a half two or three weeks ago to now 42 and a half carbon. Went long palm oil in Malaysia, long lean hogs. Anyway, a, a whole bunch of things. A more diversified portfolio now, a larger portfolio in terms of markets, uh, because I didn't have those positions on last time. And it's working really well. So uh, almost no, I have, I see here, I have a, uh, after the rollover, I have a small loss on the SMI, which is the Swiss equity index market. But um, all the other positions are firmly positive. So it's all good. Sounds pretty good to me. On our side, we also had a pretty solid week. In the trend-following portfolio, many sectors really uh, quite broad-based, many sectors contributing positively this week. Equities, currencies, energies were the best sectors for the week, even though the best market was actually soybean oil. Fixed income was marginally positive as we have some gains in short positions in long-dated bonds, uh, outpacing small losses in the short end of the curve. So all in all, pretty solid week. Your performance and our performance uh, is really also confirmed by my trend barometer, which finished the week at 61, which is a very high reading actually, suggests good environment for trend followers. And of course, you can see that at the Top Traders website every single day. In terms of our volatility strategy, there's still a fair amount of speculative trading going on. And currently, there are some Companies in the smaller cap index, the Russell 2000, that are now bigger than companies in the large cap S&P 500. 
And even though the VIX has declined this week, it's interesting to see that we still see some pretty high realized volatility levels in some of the big S&P stocks. If we look at the 10-day realized close-to-close annualized volatility, you have Apple trading at 45%, Microsoft 29%, Amazon 30%, Facebook 41%, Google 36%. Relative to the index, these were pretty large single swings we saw in those stocks indicating some kind of rotation going on and uh, causing realized correlation to be pretty low. And of course, historically, this means that either the single stock volatility has to come down or the index volatility has to come up. So there's some insights from some of my colleagues, some of the specialists we have in the vol space. Our volatility program actually had a pretty quiet week overall, but it's still positive for the month and for the year. Now, my own trend-following portfolio was up. Can't keep up with you, Moritz, though, but it was up 3.17%, leaving it up 8.54% for the year. Performance coming from Group 2 models, so the quote-unquote discretionary type models, although Group 1 models were also positive, and even the short and fast-moving models in Group 3 made money probably from the reversals in, uh, in the bonds. They were pretty quick to get short in those markets. Sector performance, equities, energy bonds, doing the best, the worst sector for the month is base metals and precious metals, and even a very small loss in softs. Single markets, the DAX, the 10-year notes, and the Canadian dollar are the top three markets. And uh, at the bottom, we find copper, the euro, and lead. And in terms of the trading, very light trading actually this week, but it did start out taking some long DAX position in the fast-reacting models. It also bought a little bit of SMI like you, Moritz, and a bit of lean hawks and German bubbles. In terms of the risk levels, where I measure the risk to stop, that expanded a little bit to 11.11% at the close of business yesterday, up from about 8.24%. But that's most likely because markets are moving in favor of the trend, so it expands the distance to the stops before they start moving up. So... That was our recap. Now we're going to dive into some of the really interesting stuff, which we don't talk about that much. We do have some questions from Daniel, from Carl, from Mark. But before we dive into that, I want to dive into something that you actually mentioned as a topic, Moritz, namely the challenges that managers face when it comes to cash management in light of increasing inflation. And especially, of course, for CTAs that use very little margin, so they're sitting on pretty large cash piles in their funds. So I have some thoughts about it, but since you brought it up, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, happy to do that. And just before we start doing that, you know, with the strong performance that I've had in the past three to four months, and I I, I want to mention that because I think it's important. You have these periods where it feels like you have diamond hands and whatever you do kind of like works, whether that's in systematic trend following, whether that's in Bitcoin, whether that's in cash and carry trading, this, that, any other thing. Sometimes you have these periods where things just work. On the flip side, I also want to mention that I have these periods where nothing works and it's it's really tough. And I've mentioned it before, what, what I force myself to do is to already look forward to a distant point in time termination or you know destination unknown, I will have these periods again where my performance absolutely, in air quote, sucks compared to other people. And you know this kind of like keeps me more even keeled and not get carried away with, oh, I'm up kind of like 20% in this portfolio and you know 8% in cash and carry trades and you know Bitcoin is completely to the moon. 
this is a period in time and I'm sure at some point it will stop. And then you need to face reality again and, you know, work through that drawdown. Of course, I'm happy to be at a new all-time high. I've been waiting for that. It feels great. But at the same time, again, I try to stay as balanced as I can with these things. Right. So cash. Cash is is something that's important and not every CTA, I think, considers it important. And I want to mention why. The default setting is for most CTAs to say, I'm putting access cash into T-bills. And that is about how much they think about it. They don't think much harder. It's kind of like a T-bill position. And I find that unsatisfactory because especially for managers that have a low margin to equity where the access cash is, cash is large, right? Say you have 80%, 85%, something like that of money that you do not need. And kind of like if I, if I you know, put myself in the shoes of an investor, I'd ask, well, that is 85% of my money. I'd like to have a very good answer as to what it is that you're doing with it. And if you're only putting it into T-bills, only in quotes, then give me an answer as to why you do that. Because there are alternatives out there. This is not an alternative free space where there's only T-bills and that's, you know, the only thing you can do. And it's one thing to do that when kind of like the T-bill rate is at 6%. It's quite another to do that. And in your introduction, you've mentioned the, the Danish pension system now forcing people to accept a minus 50 basis point yield. It's quite another thing to do that at essentially zero. And I know that interest rates have risen in past weeks, and also the shorter end of the curve has risen. But kind of like the three-month point, the T-bill point, you know, the very short-dated stuff is kind of like stuck there. So you have this thing where, you know, you hold this paper that doesn't compensate you for risk and actually has a lot of risk with respect to inflation. And inflation is here. And I've, I've come to realize that more and more clearly in the past weeks and months, having taken a deeper dive into the topic of inflation, and by the way, on two quants, we'll publish something on that in just a couple of days. Inflation is here. And the numbers that are reported to people, I don't think are all that accurate. They're doctored. And, you know, we'll write about why that is. So when inflation is there and you have all that money in T-bills, then that debases. Currencies do debase. This is not an opinion of mine. This is a matter of fact. If people want to look at the historical statistics and the purchasing power of even the fiat currencies, which still exist today. And by the way, most of them have gone out of existence, right? The ones that we still have around us are essentially the dollar and the British pound. The euro is a relatively new invention. And the euro probably has lost 50% of its purchasing power since its inception in, 20, in 2000, so in 20 years. And if you look at the purchasing power development of the US dollar, that is just a nasty minus 95% or whatever it is in the last 100 years. So you're losing money on that stuff. And really the question is, why would you accept such a setting and be content with it? And um, I would challenge that in light of alternatives that are available. I'm not necessarily talking about Bitcoin here. This is not the thing. But yeah, I, I must say that I do like things, or I do like developments. There's a firm in, in, in your home country, 
or second home country annuals in Switzerland that has a gold-denominated share class for CTA. I very much like that. I think this is a great idea. Gold isn't necessarily, you know, negatively correlated with minus one to inflation, but is a it is certainly a much better storehold of wealth than fiat money, right? So if you put part of that access cash into gold, then over longer periods of time, not necessarily from one year to the next, but over longer periods of time, and we always say that if you want to invest in a trend-following CTA, your investment horizon should be five years or longer, right? So if you have these rolling five-year periods, it's very hard to find periods where a gold-denominated CTA underperforms a fiat-denominated CTA. And I think this is worth paying attention to. And today, because these markets are developing so quickly, there are alternatives available to things that you can do with your cash. And I want to mention that because the firm that I work for, and I've mentioned that on this podcast, you know, we run money for Munich Re. And we're changing this right now for a very large institutional investor who is very concerned about what is being done with the cash and what the utility of cash is, because cash is not strategic. It's not strategically important to a reinsurance firm to have cash. You want to deploy money into things that actually have a return, have a yield, right? So a managed account setting or, you know, at least an investment that is not a pooled like a fund that requires all that cash to be held there for no purpose is much, much better. And I give you one example and of, of what it is that you know one could do, which I think actually improves the risk and improves the return, which is fantastic and, and way better, in my opinion, than T-bills. You can open an account with, a, with the emissions trading agency here in Europe and purchase spot emission rights. Those are the carbon emission rights that I've just mentioned very briefly in my introduction about performance, the stuff that now trades at 42 and a half. There is a lot of political tailwind behind carbon. Politicians want the price of carbon to go higher. It's a fantastic market. If a trend follow, if you're a trend follower, you should definitely trade that market. Um, so you can purchase the spot rights, and it doesn't cost you anything. You just open that account, you register with that agency, and that allows you to participate in the auctions, which are run by the European Energy Exchange in Leipzig. You're then along the spot, and lo and behold, you can sell a futures contract against it. That's the stuff that we trade in our CTA portfolio. And that returns 1% per year as a basis trade. And that is a cleared security, stuff that we're doing all the time, and a government agency with which you're holding your emission rights. That's pretty damn good. And it makes 1%. And it's super stable. So this is kind of like the, the very conservative alternative to that. And then you have, let's go to the maximum, which is you do cash and carry on Bitcoin or something like that. And then you can do 20, 30, 40%, depending on where the market is. But if you have a mix of these things, then I don't think that your the security of your portfolio is compromised, but you can maximize or increase your yields. And I think that's important. Good stuff, Moritz. I, um, I don't agree with all of it. I agree with some of it. One of the things you mentioned is that there's this fund I'm not sure it's Swiss. I actually thought it was Austrian, if I if we're thinking of the same one, but where they have this uh, share class in gold. And I remember, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever it was, more, that that was something that came up. I mean, there was, was new. 
And I don't know if it's the same firm. They're based in Zurich, for sure. They're based in Zurich. Okay. But there's also an Austrian firm anyways that came out um, that starts with an S. I don't want to name that firm mm -hmm. here, but the challenge I have, certainly if you put you know, all your cash in, in gold, is that you can go through periods where gold goes down from like 1800 in around 2010 to 1050 in around 2015. Mm -hmm. That's a massive impact on performance that are not related to your trading. And I just don't think that that's our job to put investors through something where the performance of your cash management can be more dominant than the performance of the product. I do take your point that there can be an issue with fear. So anyways, but I knew you were going to bring up this topic, which I think is a great topic because actually it's one of the most important parts of what we do, yet we never talk about it because as you rightly said, maybe 80% of the money we we manage are actually held in these cash reserves. So I reached out to the cash manager that we use at Don um, because I wanted to have kind of an expert insight to what might be interesting or important to observe. So Mike Kastner at Halyard Asset Management came back to me with some observations. So I'm just going to read them. This is his words. So I don't want to take any credit for that. So he writes back to me and says, first and foremost, it's a bad idea to leave excess cash at the FCM as, as witnessed by the failure of Lehman Brothers and MF Global. At Halyard, we have decades of experience managing collateral cash for CTAs, hedge funds, corporations, insurance companies, and institutions. The factors we consider when managing a cash portfolio is the need for liquidity, deep credit analysis, diversification, and an extensive counterparty network. Also, when selecting a cash manager, it's imperative uh, to look beyond who has the best performance. Usually, top performers will achieve that performance by taking an added risk, namely in the form of longer duration, lower credit quality, asset-backed security positioning, and or callable securities, to name a few. All of the previous named yield-boosting strategies come at an expense of liquidity. Each will suffer from a wider bid-ask uh, spread during certain times and may be untradeable during times of panic, as was the case last March. The Halyard answer is the reserve cash management. The objective of the reserve cash management strategy is to maximize after-tax total return while simultaneously emphasizing capital preservation and income. We seek to achieve that investment result by applying an actively managed relative value approach to what is typically a passively managed laddered short-duration bond portfolio. The reserve cash management was started by Halyard's principals during the IPO.com era of the late 1990s as a way to help technology and internet, internet entrepreneurs manage their newly realized wealth. The philosophy is to maximize after-tax total return on their cash while simultaneously emphasizing capital preservation and income. The reserve cash management investment parameters are a maximum maturity of two years for fixed rate securities and three years for floating rate securities. The minimum average credit rating of the entire portfolio is A. And leveraged and derivative securities are prohibited. So that's how the people we use at least um, look at this. But I do, as you, encourage everyone to look at this issue because I think it's it's really critical. And I think actually, 
And I think that's your opinion as well, Moritz, that this could be something that turns out to be even more important than what we've seen should, say, central banks or, or other things happen where we lose control of the of the yield curve, so to speak. And we see that there has, even this year, been kind of a mini flash crash in the most liquid of these, namely the U.S. Treasury market. So all I can say is that we're very happy with the relationship we have at Halyard. And if anyone out there who listens who are CTAs and needs some inspiration, feel free to reach out to me, info at toptradersonblog.com. Happy to introduce them to you. And can you specify the risks that you want to take? Because essentially what you're saying is that, you know, say you have a margin to equity ratio of 20%, right? Then 80% of your money now sits with, 80% of not your money, of the investor's money, yeah. now sits in the responsibility of, um, I forgot the name of the firm that you've just mentioned. Sure. What if they make a mistake? What if they take on credit risk and something blows up? They, you know, you, if they charge a fee, I guess, and um, but the exposure is now essentially to not only done, but also to a second asset manager that you have connected well, to the firm. So, first of all, uh, so historically, a lot of uh, CTAs, certainly when I started, a lot of CTAs uh, did this themselves internally, right? So, that was just part of what they did. It was very easy. They would just buy treasuries, as you said. That changed over time. I can't remember when, but then the first cash management firms started to pop up. But it turned out that actually during the great financial crisis that a lot of these cash management firms weren't very good and a lot of accounts got frozen. So, so that was a big problem. So at Dawn, we certainly have always put safety first. So what you do, certainly in our relationship, I don't know if you can do that with all cash managers, you can with Halyard. You define the rules, so to speak, the, um, the terms and what they are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And since you can see the positions every single day. It's very easy to make sure that, like we do on our normal positions, that everything is is managed accordingly. So that's how you would, that's how we do it. And that's how I suggest people do it. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's not for everyone. It's just, if you have a long-term investment horizon, you can, you should be able to sit out a correction in gold, right? Because over the very long run, the trajectory of gold is up. Yeah, but you don't know what the investment duration is more of your clients, right? You might have a long-term investment duration, but if you do it for a fund and you get a big redemption, you have no control over that. That's the problem. Yeah, so we have, the again, the difference between running a business and, and kind of like being an entrepreneur, running your own money. If you were running your own money, you'd never do something like that. I, I don't have any cash and T-bills, right? I'm interested in maximizing my bottom line and, and being a good trader. So my horizon is different. It's always, I think, this distinction between clients and what you do for yourself. Yeah, I, I do like that prop approach in kind of like the, the way I think about these things. By the way, have a look at Blendex. That is Eric Rittenson's firm, who I think we had on the podcast probably a year ago. Absolutely love that stuff. He, he now has, I think, 50% of his money in the S&P 500 in spies. Technically, when you think about that, he's denominating half of his fund in SPY terms. You could make the point and say you're putting all of your money in SPY and use trend following as an overlay. You use the SPY units as collateral for your futures position. What that technically is, is you have not denominated your CTA in gold terms, as in my previous example, you've denominated your CTA in SPY terms. And again, probably over a, and we know that long only buy and hope SPY, this is not what we like to do as trend followers. But I guess with that mix, 
from an inflation point of view, it's more protected than being in just short dated fixed income securities or even worse, longer dated fixed income securities. And I guess that over the very long run, say 10, 15, 20 years, he's going to come out ahead with that strategy. The probability of that happening is at least very, very high. Of course, you need to communicate these things very clearly to your clients that this is what's happening. But from a when you're concerned about real yields and not nominal yields, which is what you should be, right? I mean, your CTA or whatever your, your hedge fund manager can tell you that he or she has made 5% in a year. If inflation is 4% in that same year, you've made one. That is actually what counts, at least to me. So if you are a real world, real yield, real yield investor, then I think it's you need to look at these things and consider them carefully. No, I mean, I completely agree that there's no comparison as to what you can do if you run your own money. You can do whatever you want and you can clearly maximize all parts of the portfolio to an extent that you can't do uh, when you're on a CTA and you have clients and you need to meet liquidity every month or every week, however often it is there, for sure. I love what Eric and his team is doing as well. I think blended products is the way to get trend following into people's portfolios. And actually, I did a, a calculation uh, on our own program to see, okay, so what would it have been if we had done 50% S&P and 50% our WMA program since 1984 when we started, what I found fascinating was that the sharp ratio between the S&P and the uh, blended product was almost identical. 0.82 for uh, for the blended product, I think it was, and 0.8 for the S&P. So pretty much exactly the same. But here's the difference. The returns of the blended product was twice what yeah. the S&P has done, and the, and the drawdown was half. So... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not rocket science, and and but it, exactly. that's it's, that's why it's such a great thing to do. And I agree with you. That's another way to sign, even though you're still going to have the you're still going to have the cash management problem uh, in your portfolio because you do this via futures. So you still have some cash left, right? But but you're right. I mean, it certainly is a way to to take some of the uh, edge off. Well, you you could buy the spy. Uh, you could buy the cash. You could buy the cash. Use the yeah. cash exactly. Yeah, yeah. And deploy yeah. it that way. And I think you know uh, Eric has done a good job. You know, explaining the rationale as to why he's doing that. I think he's he's, yeah. he's doing it really really clearly. And I wish him all the best and and a lot of success for his firm. And it also goes to show, in my opinion at least, that you know when we speak about how do you change like the entry signal or the exit signal or that time window versus another time window and you do all these tweaks in relation to what we've just discussed that really takes a backseat whether i'm trading a 120 day breakout strategy or a 150 day breakout strategy that is going to change the stuff a little bit but really Put that in perspective to what are you doing with 80% of your cash if you make a little adjustment to what you're doing there. That goes just a much, much longer way than tweaking your end to your exits a little bit. And I think that this is not focused on enough about because, and, and it's also true, like we always speak about how oh, we could be doing this and moving averages and breakouts. And so, yeah, that, that's all true. But when you really step back a little and you look at the overall construct, what you do with the cash is just, uh, it needs to come up in kind of like the first meeting with your manager. What are you doing there? Because it's yeah. definitely more than half of your portfolio. It's so funny, Moritz. So when I worked for Jerry back in the mid-90s, we actually, believe it or not, we did a blended product. We created a 
product where we would have full exposure to the S&P plus 20% or 25% exposure to Chesapeake's strategy, we could not sell it. We, we just couldn't. And, and you know what? It's funny because I think that Eric and other people doing blended products, I think they'll have massive success once we go through kind of the prolonged bear market. I mean, it's great that they started last year because they really, they already have excellent evidence as to how well it works because of the COVID crash, right? But I will say it is tough to convince people to get rid of their 100% equities when equities are just doing what they're doing at the moment. But it will come without a doubt. And we've been preaching this for years, but as separate line items, right? You should have your equities, you should have your trend following, you should have your bonds and all of that stuff, right? But blending it for people and making it easy, I mean, convenience is never going to go out of fashion. So I completely subscribe to that. But we do have some questions, Moritz, from the community that uh, we need to dive in. So I'm sure we'll come back to this point. I think it's important. So I'm sure we'll come back to it more often, so to speak. We have a question from Daniel. Daniel writes, and this is some comments related to maybe something that Jerry has said, but I think it's relevant for hearing your thoughts as well, Moritz. And I'm just thinking here. Oh, yeah. So first, he comes with a bit of a comment, which I think um, I'm going to try and, 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 and read it out anyways. So he says, my first comment about five weeks ago when Jerry was on, he was talking about wanting to be short last March, but when the market was crashing, it didn't pan out. But the decision to be short was correct. This reminded me about the story of Pete Carroll in the 2015 Super Bowl that Annie Duke analyzes in her excellent book, Thinking in Bits, absolutely, where the coach of the Seahawks, Pete Carroll, called for a pass. The pass didn't work out and the Seahawks lost the game. The press, the fans, and most other People as well looked at the result of a lost game and said that was a bad decision, whereas Pete Carroll had looked at the odds and made a good decision that didn't pan out. The lesson, of course, is to separate the process slash decision-making from the outcome. The process said to uh, be short last March, but the outcome didn't pan out. It was a good decision. I agree with that. Daniel, thanks for that reminder. Now for the question. He writes, now for the question, maybe for Moritz, as I've heard him talk about these terms. In the end, a system generates R multiples and R being the initial risk taken. For example, out of 100 trades, a simple trend-following system may have 44 1R losses, 20 half-R losses, 25 1R winners, 5 5R winners, 5 10R winners, and one 20-hour winner. I think that's a difficult to say right after, after each other. This is a 64% loss rate system. Over 100 trades, this would equate to 66-hour gain with an average gain of 0.66-hour per trade. On top of this goes position sizing. If each trade was 0.3%, then 100 trades at 0.66-hour per trade equals 19.8%. I'm, I'm taking that you've done all the calculation correctly, Daniel, we haven't checked any of this. If each trade was 2%, then 100 trades at 0.66R equals 132% increase. What this shows is the performance is derived, is a derivative of position size, not the system itself. 
Here's my question. I've recently heard Jerry mention 0.3 position size, 30 basis points, but haven't heard the other podcasters talk about their position sizing strategies, both in terms of risk management, how many losses in a row can you handle, but more importantly, in terms of aiming for a performance target. What is your thoughts and uh, and concepts on position sizing? So long-winded question, but I think we got to it in the end. Hmm. I like the question and it shows that Daniel, I think, understands that space. You know, he's thinking in the right framework, thinking in these terms, in our terms, in unit terms. I mean, all of that, I can only recommend the books of Van Tharp in that respect, The Ultimate Guide to Position Sizing, or I think Trade Your Way to Financial Freedom, these type of books. Van Tharp has written extensively and very well, in my opinion, about position sizing and how important it is. Now, Daniel has explained, you know, how we do it. We have an initial stop. That initial stop, at least in the way that I trade, is a function of a market's volatility, which I measure using the average true range. And I then come up with a position size expressed in in lots of a futures contract, which requires me to put in a risk level of equity that um, I'm willing to take. And if, you know, Jerry has said it's 30 basis points, and, and that's absolutely fine. If you're trading many markets, then 30 basis points, can I, you know, that's, that's a meaningful risk. If you're trading a smaller portfolio, less diversification, maybe you need to take on, even that may sound counterintuitive, maybe you need to take on a little bit more risk so that those positions become meaningful. At the end of the day, it depends on your risk aversion. And, and what pain you're willing to endure along the journey. If you change the 30 basis points of Jerry to 60 basis points or to 75 basis points or to 1%, that is a lot of risk, especially if you're trading many markets. And if you do that, you also need to already today, before you start with that system, before you start trading, you look at the back test, you need to put in yourself in the position that at some point you will have a massive drawdown. You need to anticipate that and accept that and kind of like put yourself in the position that, you know, you're going to go through that drawdown and you'll be capable of holding on and not giving up. That's important. Nothing is worse than trading too much risk, going into these drawdowns and then failing to follow through. And, it, you know, it, it, there, there's a good chance that people will fail at that point. They're not emotionally strong enough to pull the trigger again on the next 100, the next 1,000 trades when they are in a 60 or 70% drawdown. I haven't been down there, but I know that if it were me, I'd probably be gun-shy at minus 70%. So I don't want to go there. I still need to you know, look at the numbers and use my sample size and use the facts and the historical results of my trading system. The average win, the average loss winning trades and losing trades, you know, these type of things. How many R's do I make, just as Daniel explained? And then find that number that I personally am comfortable with uh, for my trading. I also think that it depends on what you're looking to do. If you're in that, let's call it that trading game, to really hit the ball out of the park and, you know, make a lot of money and you're at a relatively young age, and maybe you can't even accept blowing up an account. A lot of successful traders have blown up accounts. Not only once, twice, three times, right? 
course, it becomes increasingly difficult to again get capital and start over again, and it leaves some scars. But if you're at a younger age, then yes, I mean, by all means, give it a go. You know, there's um, if you're risking five basis points and you're 25 years of age on a systematic trend following system, then why do it in the first place? If you are a, you know, 85-year-old veteran that is uh, very wealthy and has fought all the battles in the markets uh, for the past 60 years and, and you're, you've survived it, why would you risk 1% on a trade? There's just no point doing that. So it's probably a dynamic function of, of many things, your own wealth line, your age and these type of things and your character, your emotional stability. I'm trading a higher risk than 30 basis points. We've heard Jerry talking on that podcast that he has started to trade smaller and he's you know trading smaller and I, I fully respect that. I'm not at that point yet. I'm still trading larger than 30 bips and I think it's it's the right thing for me. At the end of the day, to answer the question finally, it is really a personal thing. You need to figure out what your risk level is, how much heat you can endure and then stick with it. Very eloquently put. I don't really have much to add. I think the only thing I would add is that you don't have to take the same amount of risk for every trade. You can have systems that allocate different risk per system. That's something I use in my trend-following model. So I just want to put that in, but it has to be rules-based. But then I wanted to ask you a question, Mortz, because I think we haven't had it for a while, and maybe we've never had this question, but I certainly remember people asking me, and that is, have you ever found a good rule of thumb to estimate your expected drawdown? I have my heuristic, which is my worst drawdown, is at least, at the very, very minimum, two times sigma. And that's an aggressive estimation. So if I'm running a 20% annualized volatility return stream, I need to expect to be down 40% at the very minimum going forward. I'd rather say probably expect that to be 50, 60, something like that. You know, some weird stuff happens. But there's no mathematical formula that can ever produce that result. You can't, there's no formula where you can say I'm trading that much risk and therefore my maximum drawdown is going to be X. That doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is kind of like you can look at the sample size and the historical data set that you have developed. Look at that. Look at your historical drawdowns that you have had and then say, well, you know, the worst drawdown is the one that's sitting in the future because the longer you trade, at some point if you're trading long enough, then your life track becomes longer than your historical sample size, right? So the probability of a major drawdown happening in life trading then therefore also increases just as a function of time. So at least two sigma, two and a half, something like that. And then again, have some corridor, some error corridor where you say some weird stuff may happen. Some GameStop event, some uh, whatever, I mean, crazy markets. Markets are crazy and they are dangerous. And you may be Swiss franc, January 2015. You're on the wrong side of that thing. That hasn't been part of your historical data set. But the thing goes from 120 to whatever it was, 78, in, in, in a gap. Oops. So, you know, you may already be in a 40% drawdown at two sigma, and then that stuff happens, and you're at minus 60 because of one trade. So you can't, this is not an exact science, but two to three sigma 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I would have said two and a half, so um, I'm completely in agreement, and that's something I've certainly seen happen. So, uh, yeah, by the way, we haven't even talked about GameStop. I mean, I just noticed the stock price uh, this morning, and that certainly seems to be uh, continuing its um, battle or whatever is going on. We'll maybe pick that up another time. <laughs> so it's amazing. It's not over. It's, you know, we have all these people, people call this a bubble, right? It's the GameStop bubble because there's a bunch of Wall Street bets, Reddit traders that have pushed it up and they figured out how to engineer a, a massive short squeeze and, and kudos to them. They have figured that out, right? And, and they're in the markets. They're forced to be reckoned with. But normally what you have is be that the stock of Kodak or Long Island Ice Tea, which become Long Island Blockchain or the Dutch Tulips or the, the South Sea, uh, East India Company, you name it. All of these things. They have one moonshot and then they implode and they come back down to earth and they stay there. They either stay there very low or at some point they get buried and they get out of business. And GameStop is not that. GameStop nope. has has done the up and the down, and it's going back up again. So it's not easily killable. You know what's interesting is that uh, actually I would like to find out what, what 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 is going on with that. That I think actually is an interesting distinction that you point out there, and 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 I thought about the same. But what what I've heard from other people listening to other people talk about it, which really surprised me, is that Melvin Capital, uh, that of course came into the news for having lost all this money, shorted the stocks around 40 bucks or something like that. But they kept it even when it went down to $3. They did not cover their short. And I'm just thinking, that's crazy. I mean, if you got so much profit, why the hell aren't you just getting out? I mean, what, what's, what's the, the last $3 really going to matter to you in your P&L? So I, I, I think I've changed my opinion a little bit on what's going on with that. I have a screen for GameStop, which I watch during the day, out of pure interest. I think it's fascinating. You know, as, right. as a trader, you have to love the markets. And what's happening with GameStop is um, it's just absolutely fascinating. They have the most actively traded options on the street. The most actively traded highest volume option is the 800 call expiring next week, Friday the 19th. That is where the open interest sits. So GameStop isn't even at 300, right? So these 800 calls are like, you know, close to 3x out of the money with an expiration that is seven days from today, actually five, six days from today as we record this. It's amazing. Those are real gamma bombs. And if there's a little bit of buying on the stock, right, and those calls catch on, their delta becomes larger and larger and larger. And the convexity on that gamma is just absolutely brutal. And that is what you see in the stock chart, right? It goes on these curved rallies where it accelerates, accelerates. And then we had it on Thursday. I actually think this was a, I'm not sure if people, you know, looked at the chart, but on, on, was it, no, it wasn't Wednesday. GameStop did that again. It had this curvature in its price chart in the probably first two or three hours of the US trading session. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, know who was it, somebody came in and dumped a bunch of stock and GameStop dropped from 350 to 200 or 199, something like that, going through four trading halls on massive volume, right? And it's kind of like, mm, 
Very unlikely that the WSB Reddit guys are doing that because they're along the 800 calls. They want that thing to go up. And is it maybe more likely that somebody is in such great pain on those trades, again, being short or not being able to cover a short delta position, having sold options, whatever the case may be, that he just needs to call a friend, somebody with a big pocketbook, somebody that has access to the stock and say, I really need you to dump you know, 20% of the daily volume on the spot, just mark it. And when you've done it, do it again. And then one more time to kill that bird. But again, it's the GameStop guys. They're, they're, they're not, uh, kudos to them. They're not giving up. They're picking that thing up again at 200 and they're driving it uh, to 300 again. So dangerous. The interesting thing with all of this, Mart, is why the hell does the SEC allow issuance of weekly options like that because that it has to be approved you can't just issue options it has to be approved by the regulator and so to me they're the ones who allows this crazy casino to take place in the first place just my humble opinion but we have to move on because time is running out and i know we can go all sorts of directions if we get into these but we'll come back to it i'm sure because we do have a question from carl it's actually a question for rob But I think Moritz will have some opinions about it. And I do also actually have the answer from Rob. I I didn't want to leave it for several weeks. So the question is, and I think it relates back to the fact that Rob uses moving averages. So Carl asks, if using an initial stop, how how do people who trade moving average crossovers get back into trades if the initial stop is hit? Do you have a view on that? Yeah, don't use moving averages. <laughs> Short answer. I, there, there's probably a million ways you can do this, but it's uh, it's an interesting question, and it it is it is a difficult one, right? Because you may get in, say, you get a a long signal, and because a shorter dated or a faster moving average crosses a longer dated and therefore slower moving average, and you establish that long position, and you know there are many moving average systems which are continuous in the sense that they would keep that long position. Uh, until the opposite happens, which means the fast-moving average crosses the slow-moving average from the top and therefore signals a short position. Now, if you do it that way, then the issue doesn't come up, right? But if you go in because the signal has been generated and you're now putting up an initial stop that, say, is you know five average true ranges, four average true ranges, whatever your thing is, below your entry price, it may happen that the market goes down and you're taking out on the stop, but at the same time, your kind of like signal is still valid. And your uh, system would say, hey, no, no, I I don't want you to be out. I, I, I want it to be in. So how do you get back in again? And it's, there's, you could probably come up with a, with a million rules as to how you want to do that. But, you know, the, the, the thing maybe, I, I really want to say that, and I I've also put a, a a blog out on that on on, on two quans is I I really came to prefer the breakouts because they're tougher to trade. I think there's an advantage there. They're not flip-flopping as much as the moving average systems. They kind of like hold on to these things for longer. And what I really like about them is that they permit me to be in a flat or neutral state. And I really think the markets have one fantastic advantage compared to other things. Sports, for instance, where you need to return a ball. You don't have to take every hit. 
if you don't like the market, if the market is range bound and it's just, you know, sideways, why play? Nobody forces you to play in the markets, right? It's it's perfectly fine to have no position because having no position is having a position. And I really like that. I only want to take on positions when there is a clear indication that I should have them. And this, I think, is where a breakout system, where you really you buy the high, force yourself to buy the high, which is a very tough thing to do, looks weird, feels weird. But this is a trade that is less flip-floppy than you know using a moving average and going in and out and in and out and in and out all the time again in a sideways market, which the breakout system is unlikely to do. At some point, it likely will put on a trade there too, but not as frequently as the moving average systems. And that is something that, for me, is a, a, a primary reason, the key reason I prefer these um, simpler breakout, buy the high, sell the low type of systems. They're not derivative. They're just pure price. Sure. A moving yeah. average is a derivative. That's true. So, first of all, uh, to, to go back to the original question. So, I got the answer as well, Carl, from uh, Rob. And he would he says the same as, as, as Mart's, that in, in this case... If you get stopped out because you have another stop rule, so to speak, initial risk, whatever it might be, that is not directly linked to the moving average per se, then yeah, if you get stopped out, you he would also wait for the moving average to reverse to get back in again. So that that's one thing. But actually, just to on on um, Moritz's point, I also like breakout. I think it's very nice that you can have these neutral periods. But let me just say you can actually create that with moving averages as well. Because if you use four combinations of moving averages and you give them one vote each, then two can be long and two can be short and then you're actually neutral. So you can do that. But with a single moving average crossover system, I think Moritz is absolutely right. You're going to get whipped in and out too many times and it's not worth it. So, yeah. But thanks for the question, Carl. Now, final question. It's a long one. So I'm going to do my best to, to read it. It's from Mark. He starts by saying, great job on all this recent episodes and since the beginning. What a great education. Thanks for that, Mark. So I wonder if any of you on the show have made synthetic data for stocks and bonds, which could be the reverse of what we have seen the last 40 years. I realize that stocks and bonds are just one slice or two slices of the pie, but being short the carry, if stocks and bonds reverse course, and go into protracted years and or decades of a bear market, especially bonds, will trend-following systems hold up under those conditions? I know diversification using many commodity and FX markets to a great degree could mitigate uh, a reversed bond market, and that position sizing is the name of the game. So kudos for you to you, Mark, for listening as well and studying and all of that. I'm curious what the guys thinks if the next half century looks very different from the last, can trend following make money if we have seen the top of the bond market? I'm doing my own testing and have seen about 80 or 90% of the profits come from the long side. So yeah, we have seen that as well. I have also heard you mention that this is what many funds have seen in their live programs in the past 25 years or so. My data go back, goes back to the 1970s or 80s and I have run various timeframes on various portfolios on various breakout systems. I would love to hear what all of you have to say about this. If backtest shows overwhelmingly that profits come from the long side and we believe in the backtest, 
because it gives us the reason to run the system forward. Why would we put shorts on in, in the system? Meaning if we do testing backwards for say 50 years and most of the profits are long trades, why do we bother about doing a backtest if short trades have a very low probability of success are taken as often as long? I've heard Jerry talk about this before on the show and he says that the future might simply look different than the past, but the whole point of systematic design is coming up with a program based on the past. Any clarification on your philosophy here would be appreciated. On a side note on this topic, an unnamed fund of which you interviewed the manager pulled out his shorts from his trend-following program and put them back with different parameters. He's a really sharp guy, by the way, and has made good returns in the past, not only in trend-following, but other strategies. He discussed the removal of shorts, not on your podcast, but on another interview. A few years after doing this, his firm closed a trend-following program a year or two ago after extensive drawdowns. But I have no idea if bifurcation of longs and shorts contributed to this. Thanks for the question, Mark. It's interesting. I do think it's an important topic to discuss. I'm curious to hear what Moritz thinks about it. So over to you, Moritz. I like those shorts. I'm fully aware of the fact that they're underperforming vis-a-vis longs. And I agree with Jerry that the future not only might be different, it will be different. And we therefore just do not know whether the next 30 years are going to look like the last. And the correlation that we have seen really, you know, significantly negative between bonds and equities since, say, 2010 is very significant. The the noughties are also negative, but not as much. But ever since the global financial crisis, it's it's just been a paradise for risk parity and, you know, these type of strategies, which benefit from these negative correlations. But we also know that those correlations have been different and actually positive in uh, the decades before that. So, I need the shorts to be diversifying. I'm scared of cats when I only have long positions on, as I had in in January. It worked out. Maybe I just got lucky. But the last time we spoke, I mentioned to you, Niels, that I only had long positions. I had a pure long portfolio. It performed very well. But what if something you know had happened um, and it all goes one way? It's safer for me to have a combination of longs and shorts. And as a you know quantitative researcher, I want to step back from the markets and kind of like look at that sample size and treat it all the same way. I have no inclination to discriminate short trading vis-a-vis long trading only because of the observation that the longs have performed better in the past. So I don't want to do that. And I think it is the safer approach to accept the shorts and accept their, at least right now, their underperformance vis-a-vis the longs. It's kind of like a safety belt for me. I, I like to, to carry those guys along. And oftentimes those shorts have me bailed out, by the way. You know, I've, I've, I've had the short position on, luckily at the right point in time, and it, it has reduced the portfolio drawdown. So it is, it is not only the pure net PL of these things, it is the way they harmonize in the overall portfolio context and, and what they deliver there. To answer the question whether I have looked at synthetic data that would allow me to look back, uh, say, 200 years or something like that, I have not. But firms have, AQR, CFM, I think AHL, Winton, they've written papers about that and they have analyzed trend-following systems not only since, say, the 1970s, but since uh, 
100 years or 200 years. I mean, there's some really long dated stuff. I'm not sure if that synthetic data is really good synthetic data. Um, I'm not sure what data exactly was available back then. But when you look at the time series, and they also say we've been long or short, it just looked great. Trading long and short on a systematic trend following program based on their data and their studies for the past 100 years is a fantastic thing to do. So I don't want to throw the shorts out. And regarding the bonds, yeah, um, trading them from the short side and, and losing that carry. And by the way, it also depends on, you know, what exactly is that carry at that point in time. Right now, the carry is relatively little, right? So if we're trading a short, say, 10-year note position, which I've just put on a couple of days back, the carry that I'm losing because of an upward sloping yield curve relative to the money that I just make on, on the price move of that bond going lower is, is really not that meaningful. So I, I don't worry too much about it. I know people always bring that up and they say it's, 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 they make it sound like it's almost impossible to trade bonds from the short side, but I, I tend to disagree with that. Might have a little bit of a drag, but overall should be fine. Yeah, no, uh, great answer. Let me just add a couple of things to your question. So I would say that if the premise is that we think that things might, I mean, if I understand the question correct, what if things change and we have a decade or two decades of lower bond prices and uh, maybe even lower stocks? Well, then you would want the shorts and you wouldn't want to eliminate them, in my opinion, because they can be a great, they will be a great source of, of return. So uh, I don't think that that argument would fly. The other thing you could say is that, well, even if the shorts have been quote unquote a drag, or at least we haven't made very much money on them, we've still made good money over the last at least, you know, 47 years if I look at our firm. So it hasn't prevented us from delivering very strong returns. And thirdly, I would just say that at Don, we were one of very few firms that traded when bond yields were still going up. And certainly in the period from 1976 to 1981, so not a small short period, really a five-year period, yields went up significantly. And if you go back and you find our track record, you'll see that that was a period of super strong returns. So I agree with Moritz that, um, one, we shouldn't try and predict what returns will look like or where they will come from. And I think having the flexibility, being able to adapt from a long to a short, etc., etc. I mean, we can just look at T-bonds in the last eight months. I mean, they're down 30 big figures on the long-dated futures. I mean, that's not a small move. I'm not saying the trend follows certainly long-term trend falls, haven't caught all of that 30 big, big figures. Of course not. But it, it does show that if yields are going to go up significantly from here, <laughs> there's going to be significant price moves and hopefully we can catch some of them along the way. But I think it's a super important question. You clearly know what uh, you're talking about. So I think that's fantastic. And so, um, yeah, keep your questions coming. Info at toptradersunplugged.com is where you can send them. So uh, all good on that. Before we get to the point where Moritz and I might share uh, some some uh, resources that uh, we've listened to or read or something like that, let me just say that as of Thursday, the Beta 50 index is up 1.48% for the month of March, up 3.3% for the year. And I think Friday was an update for most people. So you can probably add a little bit to that. 
The Sokjin CT index up 1.6% for the month, up three and a quarter for the year. Sokjin trend index up one and a half for the month, up four and a half more or less for the year. And the short-term traders index up 58 basis points, up 2% for the year. And as I mentioned, my trend barometer finished at 61, which is a very good reading. Stocks are still doing okay. MSCI World up almost 3% so far in March, up 4.36% for the year. But bonds are down again. World government bonds are down nine basis points in March, and they have been down both in January and in February. So we shall see. Any podcast you've listened to, Moritz? Uh, I know you've been busy, so you may not have uh, had time to listen to anything. Talking about the markets, uh, Bitcoin is higher than 60,000, guys, as we speak. Yeah, so, I just uh, saw that as we speak, yeah. It's uh, it's really strong. I see the smile. You say that, <laughs> and I, I can obviously see you. People don't maybe know that, but I can see Moritz when we speak, and and he's smiling. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. As again, you know, again, I said I I need to prepare myself already now to at some point be in the ditch and feel very bad about these things. But um, right now, it's it's all good. And by the way, this space is developing so quickly. Last week, the first options trade on the kind of like Bitcoin VIX has traded. There's now a VIX like. Uh, measure for Bitcoin and Ethereum. This is how quickly that stuff changes. And so the, the Bitcoin VIX is at 105. The Ethereum VIX is at 121, I think, as of Friday. And there's now on LedgerX, there's um, there's people trading options in the same way that people trade options on the regular VIX on these things. So it's um, the derivatives market in, in digital assets is is growing super fast. To your podcast question, actually, I, I I stepped back a little from that. I listened to your conversation with Rob and, and Jerry, which again, I you know I, I really like that one. But honestly, my observation of the podcast space is is I, I'm I'm becoming a bit overwhelmed with just the the raw number of podcasts being out there and what you could possibly listen to, and it feels a little bit like oh yeah, this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting. I could spend an entire day just listening to podcasts, but I can't do that. I need to sleep and I need to run a business and I need to be there for family. And it's kind of like, I need to become extremely selective about the podcasts that I listen to and really um, don't have a bad feeling with pressing the trash can button, even though there are podcasts I like and say, that's just, uh, if, if I listen to that stuff, then... I can't progress in my own life. I can't do my trading. I can't do my research. I can't do things that I enjoy doing. Because it's just, I mean, podcasts are mushrooming like like crazy these days. And so therefore I've just I've just dialed that back and and also think that a lot of the stuff is repetitive in so many ways. It's kind of like people talk about Bitcoin. Oh yeah, great. You enjoy listening to that for a period of time, but I don't need to listen to kind of like the 10th the variation of why Bitcoin could be digital gold. I, I, yeah, I got that. Somebody phrases that a little bit different than the next person. But in essence, it's kind of like these people, they talk about same things um, in, in, in a slightly different style. So I've just for myself decided to uh, not, not step away from it, but just, you know, become much more selective. Of course, top traders unblocked is is a mainstay. Yeah, and I and and I agree with that. And I think of course you do find your favorites and those are the ones that you follow and you invest your time in. And that's also why I often say to people here, we do realize that people are investing an hour or two each exactly. week to listen to us and we are eternally grateful for that. It is not free, so to speak. 
for people to do that. And the other thing I would say is that this is also why it is so important that we get these questions in so that we know what people are concerned about, what they're curious about. That's hopefully what keeps our content fresh. And of course, having different opinions where we don't always agree on things, that's also why we we're just giving you an honest and very raw uh, account of our own journey for good and for bad. And hopefully there's a lot of inspiration. There's some entertainment along the way. But um, that's what we try to to do. So by no means would I encourage people to, uh, to stop listening to uh, our conversations. But I do get what you're saying. For me, this week, I still keep uh, an eye on a few podcasts. I thought the last one from Macro Voices, Eric's conversation, which is... I think relevant in many uh, respects because it talked about what to do in the current situation with inflation, with rates, et cetera, et cetera. This is uh, done. Uh, this was done by um, a hedge fund manager who runs a kind of a protection type fund. It's interesting, relevant. Uh, of course, what we try to do is not. We don't want people to think like us, but we want you to think, and I think that's the key point. And hopefully we can inspire you along the way. And if you do like what we say, then you have a chance to help us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. And if you don't know how to do it, then you can go to toptradersonplot.com forward slash review. Keep your questions coming and also uh, make sure you tune in next week. From Moritz and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and be healthy. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.